one, two, five, nine. Robin Breezer, servant leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Ethan, tell me about what you're learning. So I finished my my second comp, uh, set two out of five. I still got my sexy parts. I say I, two <laughs> out of five, I still got two out of five. <laughs> That's a deep Bob's Burgers cut, I That's think. That's a deep Bob's Burgers cut. It's a good line. It's one of my favorite all-time episodes of Bob's Burgers because all the music in that episode is, is Grammy award-winning. It should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Megan Milani has Gail singing about Derek Dematopoulos and yes. <laughs> wanting him to make her yogurt Greek, which is just, I'm like, oh my God. Enter my Acropolis and make my yogurt Greek. <laughs> and there's the like lady crying in the front row. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's very good. Um, but I did my comp. I finally got it done uh, this past week. It's on ancient and medieval Christian thought. I was given five questions I had to answer two. One of the questions was on Anselm of Canterbury, which I love to answer. I had a blast answering that because I secretly, even though I disagree with almost everything Anselm wrote, like by just because he's, you know, like, like his whole thing is a little too feudal and scholastic and it's just, it's just not my thing. Right. I, I, I happen to think his brain was just like a top, top notch brain, just like, super genius brain and he was probably gay based on his writings about to devote his devotion to jesus like the dude was hot for jesus like he was he was ready he was good to go can i as an aside say that uh one of our mutual friends retweeted a tweet on twitter that said if i was alive when jesus was alive he wouldn't have died a virgin and i was like (laughs) (laughs) vicious that's pretty good that's pretty good. But I answered a cool question about just his atonement theology. I thought it was fun. You know, I wrote a lot. But the one that I thought I think you'd really like, I, I answered one of the questions was talk about wealth and poverty, conceptions of wealth and poverty in patristic literature. And I had to use like two, like two thinkers. And so I used Basil the Great, who has this really great little volume that you can buy, listeners, on Am- on you know, don't do it on Amazon, but you can the buy it in other places. Yeah. Bookshop.org. Uh, the volume is called On Social Justice by Basil the Great, and it's four sermons about wealth and poverty. And uh, and then I also used uh, John Chrysostom, Chrysodom, something like that. He's one of those folks that like I've never heard his name pronounced, and so I don't I don't exactly know how to pronounce his name. Chrysotum, Chrysotum, Chrysotum. There's a couple of S's. That's what makes it weird. There's a few random yeah. S's at times. It's um, golden mouth. That's yeah, the beginning the part of mouth. it. And then yeah. the sto- stone thing is like mouths, like in plants. Anyway. Oh, there you go. Like, yeah. well, and he has a collection of sermons also called On Wealth and Poverty. And the kind of quick and dirty version of them both is I basically had to like write about both of their conceptions and kind of put them in context and talk about which one I found more compelling. What makes John – so John John's volume – is six sermons all on the, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Oh, wow. And so it's a series. He, he basically just writes a series where he takes a different section of it or a different kind of layer and kind of works through it and stuff. And then Basil's is like four very different texts, but, but he makes them all about 
wealth and poverty. The texts have to do with wealth and poverty, but it is just four different texts. And uh, what make the, the major difference between the two, there's overlap. Like both John and Basil are interested in like physical material redistribution of wealth. They are. But the primary difference is that John relentlessly allegorizes the text. Mm. And which I'm usually like essentially okay with like biblical allegory, you know, in, in biblical interpretation doesn't really bother me that much. That's essentially what we do in sermons anyway, like, like, like in a certain sense. And so that, that stuff doesn't super bother me. But what I end up talking about is in these sermons, he, I think he relentlessly allegorizes the text to the point where something of the radical message is lost. Hmm. Particularly with that parable. I mean, it's really hard to get around the fact that in that parable, the the rich man is very clearly the villain because he is rich. And and Lazarus is very clearly not the villain because he is poor. Like like you can't it's it's hard to get around. Well, you say that, but like a million sermons have just used that to talk about heaven and hell. I like when I preached on it one time, the one time it was in the lectionary when I was still pastoring, I had to like get like pull teeth to get people to understand that this was about money. I was like, yeah. the before it is about money. The parable after it is about money. What's this one about? Hell? That's probably about hell. <laughs> But but like John, you know, like he allegorizes the text and he he's, you know, it, it's clever. And I say that like, like, I think John's really clever. I And he doesn't he, he, he doesn't like deny. It's not like he sits there and says, you think this is about money. This isn't about money. Like, like he, he definitely wants you to know it's about wealth and poverty. But what he ends up doing is he typologizes Lazarus and the rich man. Hmm. He makes the, the primary claim he makes that I end up disputing in my answer because I just don't think it's I just don't think it's a very good even allegorical reading is he wants to sort of draw this comparison between the rich man is wealthy and his wealth has caused him to yes be too insulated from his from his suffering brethren yes become greedy all of that's true but but the primary thing is that his wealth has caused him to become, you know, like full of vice and and not virtuous and which is true in the text, like the text, you know, Jesus spends a little bit of time at the beginning making sure we get that he's not just rich, he's the monopoly man. He's he's obnoxious, you know, he's he's more than just rich. But like he wants to say that there's a sense in which like the rich man, you know, we can be like the rich man as the sort of spiritual type, someone who uh, lives a life of plenty and ease now causes us to be spiritually anemic, you know, in the here and now. And therefore he went to hell because of it. Mm -hmm. But then Lazarus, this is what I think is kind of wrong about what John is saying. Lazarus then is understood as because his because he handles his poverty with grace, because he does not live, you know, he, he lives a serious, virtuous life despite his poverty, we can interpret this poverty as schooling him for the life to come. Now, Ooh, you have to understand. 
you have to understand, like, like he does this over six sermons. He does he he approaches it from a number of angles. That's not like the only thing he does. He he still is concerned with Christians making sure they are giving their wealth. Like it he he does not deny it. He does explicitly say that. It's just the secondary piece, because he's trying to get at the spiritual meat like he's trying to he's trying to wring it dry right like how many lessons can i get from this and mm. what i ended up writing about is i end up saying mm, i other than the fact that i think it obscures the sort of radical nature of the text i i just don't think that's how La lazarus is portrayed i don't think lazarus is portrayed as particularly virtuous i don't think he's portrayed as particularly uh John doesn't say stoic, but like at peace, right? Like he doesn't, he's not portrayed as one with much faith. Right. You know, he's the primary things that matter about Lazarus is that he suffers. He has no money and everybody knows him and nobody helps him, especially the dude who owns the property that Lazarus hangs out on. Yeah. That's the, I think that's the primary thing. And so I end up, you know, I, I kind of approach that and, and go through that. What makes Basil so absolutely fascinating is that Basil takes his texts, because he doesn't preach on Lazarus and the rich man. He takes his texts and, and he approaches his biblical texts literally when it involves wealth and poverty. Basil does do spiritual, you know, allegorical exegesis and other texts, but he makes it very clear. When our Lord talks about wealth and poverty, he means wealth and poverty. He means physical wealth and physical poverty. And there's some spiritual reasons behind that. And so Basil, one of Basil's sermons is this crazy cool sermon called, I Will Tear Down My Barns, mm. where he, he's preaching on Jesus's parable about the, the man who wants to build new barns to increase his grain, you know, and stuff. Right. And then and, the, like, you fool, your life will be taken from you tonight. That guy. Exactly, exactly. And in this, and I'm, I'm having my undergrads read it, actually, uh, this week. Uh, it's on it's on the syllabus. But in this text, Basil, Basil flat out, just, just every chance he gets, flat out says, if you have, have, have grain to spare, you have robbed the poor, mm -hmm. you have robbed Jesus of Nazareth, your soul will burn in perdition. The only way to, to free yourself from hell is to recognize that not only do you share a common human nature with every poor person on the planet, but that every poor person on the planet is entitled to your wealth. Yeah. It's actually very simple. God is poor. And he goes, yes. and, and everything already belongs to God. And so the poor are the rightful owners of your stuff. And like, and he's, it's, he doesn't mince his words. Like he, he goes flat out in all of his sermons, but in particular, this one, as he like works through, you know, he, he talks about like the common good and like common wealth and, and making sure that all of our lives are better and good. And this is, this is not only just good, you know, social ethics, but it's, good theology for Basil, because for him, all of this matters because this is the way in which God has designed creation. You know, God has designed creation to, to be abundant only when we are generous. 
Mm. And this is what makes this one of his other sermons. I end up writing about two of these sermons. This is what makes one of his other sermons really fascinating. He writes about, he writes a sermon. I'm trying to remember the text that he uses. It'll text will come to me, but he writes a sermon. And the context of the sermon is there's a famine in Caesarea. Okay. There's this, you know, in real life. So there's, he's writing and, he, and he's talking, he's alluding to this famine that's going on in Caesarea. And he spends a page and a half talk, like really going into the suffering of people. Like, like we are suffering, like, like there is not enough food, you know, and people are, have to make these really horrific choices about whether or not kids will be able to eat. And he's like, he's like really into it. Like he, he's like, you know, like he, he's super sympathetic. At one point he goes, you know, how can we possibly judge a parent who realizes that it comes down to, you know, a child eating or their entire, or their entire lives falling apart? Like, what do we, how can we possibly make this judgment? You know, this is so much more complicated. Like Basil really plays it up. And after he spends like a page and a half talking about it, he says, however, the reason why we are in famine is because we have been ungenerous with the poor and God has taken our stuff from us. He lays, he lays the famine at God's feet as judgment against greed. Wow. That crazy. I actually find that nuts because what's cool about this thing is it's very ambiguous. It's either God has taken it away kind of supernaturally or this is just the way in which God has designed creation. When we are too greedy with the earth and too greedy with our with with you know with ourselves, the earth does not produce abundantly anymore and people starve. And so it's this kind of interesting ecological argument he's making too. It's fascinating, Joe. It's this fascinating fourth century sermon (laughs) about about both, you know, kind of a theology of God's judgment and an ecological theology of the earth. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I love it. I'm like, I am upset at how directly I can apply it to like situations in my life that I know of. Not like just me, but like the world, like the fucking Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. when you tear apart the lungs of the planet, the earth does not function because of your greed. And that is what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It is really, really compelling. And so in the end, I just sort of talk about like, I go through like, you know, I analyze Basil and I'm like, Basil's really interested in the spiritual problem. Like he spends a lot of time talking about greed. He spends a lot of time talking about greed as the spiritual disease. Right. And so, and, but, but the difference between Basil and John is that our practice leads to these spiritual diseases. It's not really the other way around. Mm. Like for John, the problem is not so much that the rich man is rich. It's that he's, has this sort of spiritual wasting disease that causes him to fail to, you know, be open and compassionate to Lazarus. For, for Basil, Basil would tend to say the opposite, right? Like wealth has created greed. Mm -hmm. And so the solution to get to ending your greed is to end your wealth and to, and Mm -hmm. to recognize that, no, your wealth is killing you get rid of it, disperse it, give it to those who are in need. It's the only way to be free from the spiritual disease of greed and to enter into, you know, God's kingdom. 
and to love and to love God properly. And so I ended my my answer with, you know, what how would Basil preach Lazarus and the rich man? Mm. You know, I kind of speculate. And I was like, well, he probably, and I, you know, I took a couple of pages and, and did that. It's really fascinating. I, I really like, you know, really was impressed with this one on the famine. Like I, I, there is something, you know, there's something so modern about it, like so contempt. And that's really what I kept thinking, right? Like the way our, you know, the earth's ecological situation right now, you know, it can also sort of be reduced to, this is what happens when cap, you know, because of capitalist greed, we've broken the planet, and and Basil sees that too in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. like, famines exist because of greed, guys. You understand that, like, like you know, God, 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 either God has is punishing um, wealthy Christians for their failure to love the poor, or this is how creation works when we fail to love the poor and fail to justly disperse, you know, our resources. Um, And what I love about this is this is just what good socialists have been saying, you know, since Basil the Great, right? Like good socialists have been saying, this is actually like how existence works. You know, (laughs) it's not like, Dar, you know, the social Darwinism is a giant lie. Like it's yeah. not, it's not survival of the fittest or the strongest in terms of a social capacity. It's actually survival of those who cooperate. Like we, we can only make things work insofar as we are prepared to work with each other. I loved it. I thought it was cool. Yeah. You know, I, I loved writing it. I thought Basil was, was very neat as usual. Yeah. And what I like about that, too, is that, like, obviously, there's not capitalism, there's not socialism in the fourth century, like those ideas aren't there. But it shows us the ways in which capitalism takes this like spiritual disease of greed and runs rampant with it and rewards it and encourages us to like on an even grander scale, do the thing that we've been warned about since the fourth century. And that like socialism not existing in the time, the concepts of we belong to each other, we should care for each other, we're responsible to each other. Those have been around for time immemorial. We find them over and over again, especially in indigenous myths. We find exactly. them in a lot of the text in in Hebrew texts that are that are sacred to Jewish people. Like we find this idea of community writ large so important. And that should hold up a mirror to our society for our community is just torn apart and we don't even know how to build it anymore like mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh i like it i do i i want i i am still thinking about john's interpretation of lazarus and the rich man and thinking about how like <laughs> how people have been like tone policing the poor since forever <laughs> like there's only one right way to be poor and it's to say oh no i have enough but like no the way we change things the way the way the poor have always changed things is to say actually we do not have enough and we demand it but like of course we want this like idealized person and it's that we can't we are uncomfortable i think always we are uncomfortable with poverty we are uncomfortable with the idea that someone has less while we have more and rather than being like the way to rid myself of this discomfort is to give away what i have we're like but you know god's doing something with this poverty you know Mm -hmm. god's making them Mm -hmm. better and that relieves our burden somehow like i think that's a um 
not saying I have read the sermon. I don't know. But that's something that I know that we do in, in modern times is to be like, well, you know, somebody's really learning through their cancer. Yeah, exactly. Let's make the world a place where like, it's less likely that you'll develop cancer. It's uh, you know, we, we all grow. We all grow in different ways. We all grow in different ways. Yeah. The the growing stuff. So with my students, a quick side thing before I tell you about Jonathan Edwards, everyone's favorite grandfather of Aaron Burr. Um, <laughs> that's how I try to that's how I try to put it. By the way, Saul Hamilton definitely didn't know Jonathan Edwards was black, which is cool. You know, I didn't know that. <laughs> but uh, you learn something new every day. Oh my god, Ethan. I assume Hamilton was a documentary. Um, but uh, <laughs> but you know, you and every other angry white man on the internet, yeah. When Adrea goes into the UVA gift shop, there's little busts of jo- Thomas Jefferson for sale. Of course. And Adrea is always like, this isn't Thomas Jefferson. Thomas, Je- Thomas Jefferson has much cooler hair. And I'm like, sweetheart, it's, I know it's complicated, but <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton is different than history. <laughs> that's, that's the way to say it. Different than history. Thomas Jefferson is a smooth and fantastic black man. Why are we, why are we? <laughs> This This isn't Davi Diggs. Who is this guy? (laughs) Who is this Jefferson? Who is this pretender? What did I miss? Um, I will be (laughs) performing as Thomas Jefferson and all white Hamilton here in the next uh, couple of months. I like how you're like, I'm going to be Jefferson, not Hamilton or Burr. You're like, I will just take that role. No, that means I get to be Lafayette as well. We all know how good of a French accent I can do in a pinch. I sound a lot like Lumiere, but you know, it works. It works. A couple of weeks ago, we did a section on evil and suffering. Right. And we read John Hick, who's one of my arch, arch nemeses. Mm-hmm. And we read his, you know, his, uh, just a piece. He, he wrote a million pieces on this, but his piece on his soul making theodicy, which right. I'm sure we've talked about before. For sure. Listeners, listeners, the 10 second version, John Hick thinks evil is not really evil in the world. He thinks that God allows, you know, suffering and pain and, and uncertainty in order to help people grow into spiritually mature beings. For many liberal people, white liberals, sounds great. If you think about it kind of longer than a few minutes, you know, it, it goes, well, but the world's a little different than that. But OK. Yeah. But yeah. but we talked we ended up talking about it and, and spent a lot of, like my students really, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it because you know, what usually happens the first time you read this and you are white is that it really does sound great. Like the first time you read it, you go, oh yeah, this really does, you know, this really helps, helps me make sense of things and, and why sometimes I get trapped in a, you know, why I get speeding tickets or, you know, sometimes my tummy hurts. Um, but, uh, we ended up talking about it a lot and, 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 you know, we ended up saying, listen, like human all aspects of human suffering are meant to help us grow as people. And um, I don't know if that's true. And I was like, well, you know, Sandra Wheeler, my ethics professor in seminary once said, when we were talking about this stuff, that when people have stage four bone cancer, there's really only two options for them. Either they get put into a chemically induced coma and die in silence where they die screaming in pain. Those are really the only two options because when bone cancer reaches the marrows, there isn't pain, painkillers can't 
stop it. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done about that. That's just excruciating, indescribable pain. And then you die, you know, like that's just kind of how it is. And, uh, and that they, my students, their eyes were like, yeah, this big around. And I was like, what's the lesson in that? Like, what's the lesson? What's the spiritual growth, you know, meant for the stage four bone cancer person? Like who, who's just a scream. That's all he is. He's been reduced. He's been reduced to his pain. There's mm-hmm. nothing else, you know? And uh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's the, that's what I thought about when I was reading John's take on, on Lazarus. I was like, well, but Lazarus is in pain. He's sick. He's, he's always, he was happy when the dogs licked his sores. That meant right. that he had some touch, some contact, and maybe even a little relief. Come on. What's the lesson? What's the possible lesson for Lazarus here? Except that there is no lesson. It's just supposed to demonstrate God's deep love for the poor and the suffering. Right. Without remainder. Like, what did Lazarus do to get to be with Abraham in paradise? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all grace. Well, what did the rich man do to have to go to, to, to hell? He failed to be an instrument of grace. That's, that's what he did, you know, and, and that's, that's the answer. But anyway, that's my side thing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. All right. By way of wrap up, let me tell you very quickly about Jonathan Edwards. I'm so, so ready. Jo- so Jonathan Edwards called America's theologian. <laughs> sure. he, that's what he's called, I guess. And, and is one of those names where, like, I think a lot of people are like, Jonathan Edwards, yeah, he was that preacher, right? The My sinners in the hands of an angry God, yeah. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right. Aaron Burr famously says in, I assume, the Hamilton documentary, My grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jonathan Edwards, you know? <laughs> he apparently was not very, like, he would read his sermons. Like, he didn't look at you. He didn't point. He didn't do, he would just read them like he was reading something. And people, like, fainted. Like, that. <laughs> that's how, like, powerful the words were. He wasn't a great orator. He just wrote. Yeah, yeah. Side thing, apparently Jonathan, Ed, like, there's a there's a segment of Jonathan Edwards' studies that's, like, all eugenics all the time. Yeah. Because Jonathan Edwards, like his lineage is like this sort of impossible lineage of like super brilliant, highly successful people. <laughs> like there have been more politicians, preachers, physicists, philosophers, business people who can trace their lineage to Jonathan Edwards than like anybody else. Like, like at least that's what these eugenicists are saying. And so like, like people are like, well, Aaron Burr, yeah, he was Jonathan Edwards, you know, grandson, and everybody's like, yeah, and so was like twenty other senators, and like you know, in some capacity, can can go back to Jonathan Edwards. I of course think that's you know whatever, it doesn't mean anything, but that's there's this interesting subsection. But if you're raising up Aaron Burr as your person, Aaron Burr, like European gigolo who also shot the Secretary of the Treasury, like, <laughs> what are think we- of it. But but you could just say that in a slightly different connotation, and, and it and it's now impressive. Aaron Burr, European <laughs> gigolo, the guy who shot Adam Hamilton. <laughs> Adam Hamilton. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't That's that a great Freudian I thought I thought Hamilton was the story of how Adam Hamilton wrapped his way into the hearts of United Methodism. That's what I thought. 
Did I what what movie did I watch? <laughs> oh my god. That's the that's the Methodocentric merch that we need is Adam that's Hamilton right. but dressed like Alexander Hamilton. We should do something really cringy and recreate the first song in, Al- in the Hamilton musical and have it just be about Adam Hamilton. First of all, I'm about 99.3% sure that if I got on YouTube and I typed in Adam Hamilton raps Church of the Resurrection, we will see a Church of the Resurrection performance of what I have just described. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure because I didn't look it up, but I know white Methodists well. Right. <laughs> I know how we think. It exists. I'm not I'm not going to ruin my YouTube algorithm by searching that, but somebody else can. (laughs) Somebody else can. But anyway, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was also like a philosopher. Like he wrote a ton of uh, philosophy. He was a philosophical idealist. He did all kinds of different stuff. And he has a treatise on the Trinity. He writes about the Trinity kind of throughout his writing, but he's got this like specific treatise on the Trinity that um, different theologians and like scholars and stuff kind of hate because it's totally like it appears to come out of left field hmm. based on like his background, like his background as this like champion of like neo-Calvinism and and he's this Augustinian, like like he's very well read in this way. Uh, but but he he's writing at a time when the Trinity is sort of under fire from a lot of Enlightenment theologians. And so he he kind of dives right in. And I already said this to you off cam- off off camera, but he was like, in his treatise, he's like, I'm prepared to say 20 things about the Trinity that are not confirmed in the scripture. Like, like he's Mind totally, me. he's totally ready to be as speculative as he wants. And what's really interesting, this is the kind of quick and dirty thing. What's really interesting about it is um, the Augustinian tradition, this is a very simple gloss, listeners. Like this is, I just want to make that very clear. The Augustinian tradition and the which, which is essentially the Western Christian tradition, tends to start when they talk about the Trinity with divine oneness and divine simplicity, and then like attempts to say how it's possible that God can be both simple and one while there's the sort of the threeness of God kind of floats around. And Augustine figures this out by by turning to the mind, right? Like he he turns to kind of psychological analogies and and some different things to talk about God as lover, beloved, and love, right? Like, and the the point is he sort of begins with that one thing, lover, right? And then like tries to say, well, there's this one unity, there's this oneness, which is the lover or or that one who loves. And then that one who loves, just like in human beings, but in a divine key, that one who loves also has the one whom they love and the bond of love between them. So there's this threeness in this oneness. And that's an Augustinian way of sort of working through the Trinity. Mm -hmm. What makes Edwards weird is that Edwards begins by saying, if we are going to take the revelation seriously then we must begin with plurality. You know, if we were to take at least the New Testament seriously, while there is God, people are not just talking about the Father. 
right? right. Like, like the persons, the persons are real, you know, in a very, in, in a far more substantial sense, Edwards would, would say, than um, the kind of psychological kind of stuff like that maybe Augustine or others sort of work with. And Edwards suggests, this is what some of these, you know, different interpreters of Edwards are saying and what I'm reading in Edwards. I think it confirms it. Edwards suggests that he doesn't outright say this, but he suggests that divine simplicity might not be Christian. And instead, wants us, because we're starting with plurality and we're starting with the persons, we should instead think of oneness and divine and the divine essence as harmony, excellency, and you're going to blow your, your mind's about to be blown. Get ready. And consent. What? From what? Okay. <laughs> From I, Jonathan I so Edwards. Because I was like, nothing's going to blow my mind. And then that was, that was the word. What? Okay. Keep going. And I'm like, and can, he says it flat out. The divine essence should be understood as harmony, excellency, and consent. As the three persons of the Trinity consent to be loved, you know, we should understand that as what's happening sort of within the divine, the divine essence. So Jonathan Edwards begins with the father. He's very, you know, he's orthodox in that way. He's like the father is the fountain, you know, is, is, is the, 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 progenitor right like like the it's not that the father story. starts first and then there's a son it all happens in one eternal moment but like the father is of course the the source the fountain and what the son is is the father's knowledge of himself the father's knowledge of himself is so complete his self-understanding is so complete that it generates the son and mm. the son's knowledge of of himself is the father because that's all what the son is. And then the Holy spirit is, is, is a real person who is produced. It's not the bond of love between the, 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 the father and the son. The Holy spirit is a real person, whatever that person means. Like Edwards is like person could mean whatever, but it's a real entity produced by the, by the mutual self-knowledge of, of father and son and that real person of the Holy Spirit, what natural, what naturally happens when persons know each other, love, you know? And so the Holy Spirit isn't the bond of love. It is the person who loves. Hmm. Here's what's wild. This is when I, I read this line, this next line. And I was like, What? Jonathan Edwards does not think that the Father, Son, and the Spirit share the same divine attributes. Oh. He thinks that the Father is is the Father's primary attribute is happiness. Happiness, you know, the Father knows him is happy with himself, knows himself, is is totally con content with who he is in his own happiness. And and in that knowing in that happiness of himself knows himself perfectly and produces the son. The son is knowledge is the full knowledge of God found in the son is, is the entire knowledge of the triune God. Right. That's the real, that's a real logos thing. It's yeah. a very logos thing. Like he's, he's within, he's within everything. Right. 
And then the Holy Spirit is the love of God. On one hand, we can understand the Trinity as God, God's knowledge, and God's love. Or we can understand the Trinity, this is one way Edwards puts it, or we can understand the Trinity as, you know, happiness, knowledge, and, and love. But the Father does not have knowledge or love unless the Son dwells within him with the Spirit. Hmm. And the Son has no happiness or love unless the Father and the Spirit dwell within the Son. This is, and same with the Spirit, right? This is how Edwards describes perichoresis. Hmm. There's this mutual indwelling, but here's the thing. It is precisely the mutual indwelling that produces the divine essence, which is why the divine essence is plurality and harmony. And so it's not sort of simplicity. It's the three components mingled together to produce harmony. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is... In many ways, this is like totally wild for like this time period, because we really don't get this again until the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get anything like this until the 20th century. But this is important for Edwards. The, the reason why it's like for Edwards, excellency is not possible with one. Hmm. And he says, you know, if God were one, God would be a stone. And stones cannot love, they cannot know themselves, and they cannot be happy. I just cannot believe this is Jonathan Edwards saying. I know, it's wild. It's wild. And, and, so, wow. and, and so consent, harmony, and excellency become the key words of the divine essence. Hmm. And then this is what then produces, you know, and then and then like creation is the sort of analogical outpouring then of, of the Trinity. That's a very common, you know, it's a very speculative Trinitarian move. Edwards is well within his rights to make it. Lots and lots of theologians make that move before and after Edwards. But it then, dis but, but this is how Edwards' philosophy of beauty then comes into play. Because Edwards is really, under, you know, that's one of his watchwords is he's this aesthetic thinker. He thinks a lot about beauty. And he goes, beauty, this is why God is beautiful. It's because God is a community of consent. Wow. The divine persons consent to be loved by each other. And the church and the world is by its design meant to be harmonious, excellent, and in relationships of consent with each other. Hmm. I like that a lot. I'm so upset. Wow. And that's what makes it beautiful. For Edwards, that's that's the key to beauty. The key to beauty is when creatures consent to be. Hmm. Beauty is produced in this because you cannot have harmony without consent. Right. Right. You know, and excellency for Edwards, excellency is this sort of, you know, we, we can, can is connected to beauty just like like the it's what makes the grand canyon beautiful right just just like the whoa you know wow like for for edwards that's sort of kind of what he means by excellency it's the it's the aesthetic kind of 
components mm. of God. But yeah, that's that is the key consent. And he says it. He says it flat out. He says it flat out. The the if we start with plurality, if we start with the persons, we have to understand the Godhead as being essentially a consenting, loving society. Wow. Wow. I like you said like that the third attribute is the consent to be loved. And I like how many of us need to know that like Eden and I were talking about this like Buffalo Wild Wings the other day. (laughs) Like there is something really important about giving your consent to having the ability to consent to being loved by God, you know, and not everybody like in a, in a pluralistic society, not everybody wants to be loved by God. Right. Like that's Mm -hmm. not, that's not the world that we live in. And so if we reserve that idea of like that, that's a fundamental attribute of God. I like that a lot. But also like that, that we consent to exist, we consent to be like that. I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. In Guardians of the Galaxy, the like most profound moment is when Rocket is like, I didn't ask to exist. Like I didn't ask right. to be made. And that that's always that kind of line of like, you know, I didn't want this. I didn't choose this. I didn't ask for this. To me, always feels really profound and really honest. Like I think um, for a lot of us who are mourning important parts of our existence, we're like, well, we didn't ask for this. And to say that like, that like goodness and holiness and love and all of these like abundant things that we, that we get from God are born out of our consent to be part of this. Like we have a choice. We have a choice Mm -hmm. to, we can consent to, exists and when we do that opens that opens up the world to us in a new way like i think there's something really powerful in that it feels so modern like we were talking about with with basil like it's this is an idea like the idea that the first person of the trinity is so self-actualized that they produce the second person of the trinity like that's that's something that I feel like is a buzzword today is self-actualization. Like there's something mm-hmm. really fundamental in this. I like it. Yeah. I'm upset. I, I'm kind of upset too. So like I've been reading just some different calls, just like talking about it. Apparently um, Richard of St. Victor in the 12th century, his, his book on the Trinity suggested it's like a precursor to Edwards. Mm. And at this point, it's like the only one we can come up with. Like, like it seems like Edwards, either maybe read Richard of St. Victor or he's like independently coming up with this, but, but Richard is saying, like, I haven't read his thing on the Trinity. I just see in all of these articles I'm reading that people are gesturing to him. Like the, the first person to come to suggest that the Trinity is a community of persons that, that, that we should understand it socially was Richard of St. Victor. And I go, Oh, okay. But um, a lot of people like in the reformed and Augustinian tradition really are embarrassed by this component of Jonathan <laughs> Edwards. They really, they spend a lot of time either apologizing, like like they spend a lot of time saying, no, Jonathan Edwards did not think this. This is not how it works. Like, of course he didn't reject divine simplicity, you numbskull, you know, like, like or, <laughs> or they go, no, he kind of did reject divine simplicity and we're going to try to ignore that because he's like super great Calvinist man and we love him. But then there's this collection of Edward scholars who are like bringing this forward, who are like, I don't know, like for one thing, you maybe we shouldn't be upset by this because this is 
fucking brilliant. Like it's, you know, he's basically coming up with this by himself in, you know, colonial United States, like while he's sitting at his Princeton desk, like, you know, like, what about this? You know, like, like, and, and also there's, I, I mean, I don't think he rejects divine. Like, so one of the things that people are like, well, he's a tritheist. It's, it's, it's wrong. And I go, he's not a tritheist. Where, where do you see tri? I mean, like at least a little bit, I'm like, he, he does think God has an essence. Like he right. just thinks that essence is, uh, uh, comes about within the three persons. It's not that the essence produces the three persons. It's that the three persons produce the essence, you know? And, um, and that's not tritheism. It's not that, it's not that the father is a God and the Holy spirit is a God. It's that divinity is shared. Right. And, and can only be, be divine. Like if harmony is the divine essence, then harmony is a secondary thing. Like harmony comes out of other things. It doesn't come out. Of, it doesn't just appear. Right. I, I still, I don't know. Like I kind of buy it. I'm like, wow, that's really, that's fascinating that you can do so much with that. And it's also, there's something other than that is brilliant. There's something startlingly, even though he says he's prepared to say things that the Bible never said about the Trinity, it's startlingly biblical. Like it's startlingly, it's very philosophical. Like he's very much a philosopher, but like there's something startlingly biblical about taking seriously the realness of the persons Mm. that the Mm. new Testament is, is sort of suggesting. Like Paul doesn't very quickly say when he talks about the spirit, the spirit who is shares God's divine essence. It's all very, don't worry. It's just one God and the spirit is just, you know, whatever. Like, no, like Paul, Jonathan Edwards is right. Paul's like, no, the spirit, Paul talks about the spirit. When Jesus talks about the spirit in the gospel of John, he talks about the spirit that there really is the spirit. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's not a mask God wears or a, or a substance of relation or, or, or any of the things that the Augustinian and Western tradition want to say, like Edwards is like, well, what if we just took seriously that, that, that the spirit and the son and the father are real and, and that what God is, is the mutual indwelling of these three persons. Yeah. I, I, you know, good for him. Good for him. I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't really have a, a project in mind, you know, with what I would do with, with, with Edward's understanding of the Trinity. But I certainly think that to name the divine essence as harmony. Yeah. And then say that creation is the analogical kind of theophany of God. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That, that means that like, not only does it mean that diversity is a feature, <laughs> you know, right. of creation, but like, but like diversity that doesn't um, give way to unity is a feature right. of creation, right? Like, like because diversity is how you create beauty, and God is essentially the beautiful one, and we know for Edwards, and we know God is the beautiful one because God is not one. That's what's cool. That's what makes me go, hmm, interesting, interesting. So, 
I wish that I wish that our listeners could see you do the like stroke mm-hmm. your goatee is interesting. interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I I like that kind of embedded in this is that like if creation is like theophany, right? It's it's this thing that is um, born out of this relationship, this self sufficient relationship, right? Like, and then creation is still grace, which I think is really important to me. There's not a dependency, but that also gives us this idea that like we as as creatures when we are focused when we are existing in harmony also produce new things and new and unexpected things it makes us um it's a universe of possibility which is so interesting from somebody in this period it rather than determinism from a calvinist it's this this idea of possibility yeah maybe he was high when he wrote it who knows (laughs) i don't know i don't know feel right for him It's uh, it's very interesting, and I get it. Like my my final thought is is like Paul, who's you know my my advisor, who's this super low church Calvinist. That's just what Paul is. He's 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 like I'm as low church as you can possibly get, you know, while still loving my beloved John Calvin's Institutes, and I read them every night before bed. You know, like <laughs> like like Paul Paul's just this Welsh weird. Bart Schleiermacher, queer liberation scholar who loves, who loves being reformed. But like, like when Paul was like, you should read Edwards. And I was like, but isn't he a slaver? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, you know, who wasn't a slaver? John Wesley. And, and, and he's like, yeah, I know you should read John Wesley too. But like, Paul's like, but like, here's the thing. Edwards is probably more brilliant than most of the North American theologians you've read so far like in terms of like original thinking like mm-hmm. we're still still reckoning with jonathan edwards like hence Insane. his the doctrine of the trinity that everybody you know gets uptight about because he's he's a damn social trinitarian you know that in a time 200 years before he should be you know yeah yeah and like even though this doctrine of the trinity is not enough to save him from like the the not unforgivable because things are forgivable but like the sin of being somebody who owned people right uh, and he has this huge blind spot like that's that's how people are is <laughs> they have we have these unforgivable things about ourselves that must be reckoned with in the eschaton because we just don't get it so that's right that's right yeah. anyway that's what i'm doing Wow, that's great. I'm excited for this. So do you want to sign us off? Yes. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini-sode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Spanx, Reebok, and The Dude, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.